All right, greetings, friends. I'm your host, Weston Nakamura in Tokyo, Japan. Welcome to the Across the Spread podcast, episode number one. Recently, there's been a global bond market sell off. Yields are surging everywhere, right? But there's always been an unconditional buyer of government bonds left. These guys, the Bank of Japan. So, what does it mean when the very last holdout of easy monetary policy announces that there is no more explicit cap on yield curve control and therefore the world no longer has an explicit central bank guarantee that had been in place for markets all this time, whether or not markets realized it? It is truly a historic day and really no better way to kick off this debut episode of Across the Spread. Here at the Bank of Japan, yield curve control upper band has been vanished. Let's talk about the Bank of Japan, shall we? So I'm going to divide this up into different sections because what's happening right now with the Bank of Japan and the fundamental shifts that are happening with their policy framework is so not just significant, but so widespread in its significance across various different topics and angles that it just wouldn't be practical to just mush everything together into one gigantic long run on episode, right? So that's why we're going to divide it up into sections. With that said, right off the bat, I want to start out by addressing two U.S. market themes. First is the rise in U.S. Treasury yields at the long end, starting at the end of July. The second thing I want to talk about is recent Fed policy and rhetoric coming out of the Fed. And of course, we're going to tie that into the core theme of the Bank of Japan, But the reason that I'm kicking off with the move in U.S. Treasury yields as well as the Fed, the reason I'm kicking off with that is because I want to be absolutely clear right off the bat that currently the Bank of Japan is the most market and policy consequential major central bank in the immediate term and very likely far beyond that as well. And I will show you why I can make such an outrageous claim, okay? So, let's not waste any time. Here's why the Bank of Japan matters to everyone in global markets. 10-year U.S. Treasury yields. Let's take a look at that. The reason that this matters is because the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield is also known as the global risk-free rate, for which basically all financial assets are in some way or another referenced off of to differing degrees. But this is a year-to-date chart essentially of the world's most important price. Okay, now, as you can see, the risk free rate has gone up this year, but note that the rise in the in yields really took hold in the last three months. But in the first half of 2023, 10 year U.S. Treasury yields were actually kind of capped at like a level that was like a little bit above four percent and it would hit that level and then it would immediately reverse directionally downward on two separate occasions, meaning Whenever yields rose to around that 4% level, buyers came in or sellers were exhausted and flipped the market at those levels. But the third time that this happened at the end of July, this time the buyers weren't there to reverse the trend. Or if they were, sellers of treasuries came in and overpowered the buyers at the year-to-date lows, mind you, and smashed clean through that 4% previous cap and subsequently ran it far beyond up to 5% in short order. So what's up with that? So let's 
split this into two parts. The initial breakout move catalyst and then the subsequent sustained climb to 5% thereafter. Now, the narratives that were given at the time to explain the breakout upwards in U.S. Treasury yields at the long end were there were three of them. One is Fitch, which is the the Ringo star of major U.S. credit rating agencies. Fitch had downgraded U.S. debt, U.S. credit from investment grade all the way down to investment grade. Okay. Number two, the announcement of a larger than expected supply of new bond issuance by the U.S. Treasury Department that was going to flood the market with this supply of treasuries at a time where there are no buyers of U.S. Treasuries. And so who is going to mop up all that supply, you know, in the coming quarterly refunding period? And then the third reason given, something about the Bank of Japan. Now, let me just say, the purpose of this platform across the spread is to provide you with market developments and insights specifically out of the Asia-Pacific region, which have global market impact and consequence. As followers of my previous podcast, the Market Death Podcast, are well aware of. So what that means is that I'm not going to be discussing what you are already being inundated with, like U.S.-centric market commentary, unless I have something differentiated regarding U.S., you know, out of the out of the U.S., right? But instead, I'm here to provide what you're sorely missing. What other factors and activities and developments that are occurring outside of the U.S. and Europe, but are nonetheless still affecting those markets from an external angle, okay? So, just because I spend all of my time talking about an Asia-based market development, it doesn't, by any means, equate to me saying that other things that are happening are non-factors, okay? Or that there aren't other things going on in tandem. Like, of course, there are always simultaneous and multiple different drivers of global macro markets, especially something as large as the U.S. Treasury market. And assume that I'm already aware of the existing prevailing narratives that, that are being perpetuated out there by financial media regurgitation machine already. Now, that also does not mean that I'm going to catch or cover absolutely everything else out of Asia either. But my purpose is just to try to fill in some of the missing holes of the bigger picture. That's what Across the Spread is about. It's not about investing into Asia, though of course there will be naturally a great deal of overlap. It's commentary and insights that's aimed at the investor community outside of Asia who want to know or need to know what's going on on this third of the planet that's impacting their own market interests. Now, that said, regarding this particular topic, of the kickoff and rise in you know, U.S. Treasury yields and global bond yields at the long end over the last quarter, in this case, yeah, this was overwhelmingly on the Bank of Japan. So the Fitch downgrade, the U.S. Treasury issuance, I will say that those were factors. They certainly contributed to the initial breakout move. They all really happened around the same time, okay? But that initial breakout move at the long end of the Treasury curve to new you know, year-to-date high levels, that was indeed, by and large, triggered by the Bank of Japan, who shock-lifted the yield curve control cap on 10-year JGB yields from 50 basis points to 100 basis points 
at the July 28th Bank of Japan policy meeting. If you look at this, it's the same chart of the 10-year US Treasury yield year to date, and I've just overlaid the 10-year JGB yield on top. And you can see, not only do they move in tandem to the upside, but that red line, that is actually Bank of Japan's yield curve control at 50 basis points cap at the time. So here's what happened. Heading into the July Bank of Japan meeting at the very end of the month, 10-year JGB yields, as you can see, were already basically right up against the 50 basis point yield curve control cap. And then that cap was suddenly doubled. It was lifted up and doubled to 1% from 50 basis points. And therefore, JGB yields burst out of its artificially capped level and instantly jumped into the 60 basis point handle, making new decade highs. Now, keep in mind, the Bank of Japan is the only major central bank with two policy rates. At the front end, just like everyone else, though unlike everyone else, Bank of Japan has their front end policy rate in negative territory still. And it has a second policy rate at the long end, the 10-year yield, which they've declared a policy rate. Okay, Normally, the 10-year yield at the long end is supposed to be a market-driven rate everywhere else around the world, but it's been made a, po a policy rate in Japan under yield curve control. So in a global rising yield environment in which you are artificially capping upside on 10-year JGB yields, when you take that upper band cap and you double it overnight, and you do that to the world's largest foreign fixed income investor, the Japanese, with trillions in capital deployed all over the planet, then yeah, you're damn right the July Bank of Japan policy shift or policy move was a significant trigger catalyst for global bond yields to also jump accordingly. Okay, Among the three catalysts that I just listed out, the Fitch downgrade, the new U.S. Treasury issuance, and the BOJ doubling yield curve control cap, really, it's only the last one of those three that is an actual direct market event. The other two, Fitch and the announcing of large supply of, of treasuries to be issued, those two can, of course, influence market participants to take action, but they aren't market actions in and of themselves. The Bank of Japan doubling the hard stop red line on 10-year JGB yields to 100 basis points, that is absolutely a direct market event. Yield curve control, for all intents and purposes, is basically the world's largest limit order. And it is an impenetrable wall on yields or a floor on prices. And so that just got removed and reset. So yeah, the breakout trigger was indeed the Bank of Japan. Okay, now onto the second part of the move. The subsequent rise in, you know, 10-year U.S. Treasuries from 4% to 5% within three months. The pace and the manner in which yields continued their path higher, okay? That too was not only at the hands of the Bank of Japan, but we're now no longer talking about one-off trigger catalysts that hit prices in markets immediately. 
So like a meaningless Fitch credit downgrade or treasury refunding announcement that came in above average estimates of some 20 managing directors at primary dealer banks or whatever. These are, again, these are one-off market events that get priced in immediately, okay? They don't get priced in over the course of three months. How long does it take to get a headline, a Fitch headline of downgrading the U.S. debt to price? Does it really take three months to price that in? And then during those three months of it pricing in, does it do so in a relatively orderly move like you could see here as opposed to a very hyper erratic volatile move? No, like this part of the move was by and large, like almost purely the Bank of Japan, who, let me remind you, is the largest active bond buyer on any given trading day if they want to be. It is the world's last bastion of active QE measures and cheap funding left. And it is the central bank to the country that happens to be the world's number one largest foreign holder of U.S. treasuries. That Bank of Japan had their very heavy and very busy hands in the bond markets immediately following their end of July yields curve control change as they shifted into operating in the, on a new regime of flexible control or as I've been calling it, YCCC, yield curve control control, okay? Now, what is flexible control or flexibility or YCCC? What's the Bank of Japan trying to accomplish as the foremost priority in the immediate term? Big, big picture, this is not about yield curve control specific levels. This is not about tackling inflation that is stickier than expected in Japan. This is not about the yen getting crushed. This is about the Bank of Japan attempting to reclaim their control over their yield curve control program, hence YCCC, yield curve control control, okay? And this latest October Bank of Japan meeting is just the next step of a continuation of this fundamental policy framework redo that began in July um, at the July Bank of Japan meeting. So when the Bank of Japan talks about flexibility, they're talking about the way in which they conduct their actual JGB purchases or the way in which they control the yield curve, right? So it's not just about a static level of where yields cannot go above, but now it's using their tools, their different tools that they have at their disposal to execute buying of JGBs and they could do it wherever on the curve that they want to, whenever that they want to, at whatever level, yield level, and at whatever notional amount that they want to. That's what flexibility is, okay? Flexibility is the real weapon for the top-down, non-economic market price setter. And it comes at the direct expense of clarity and understanding of policy activity and precedence to us, market participants. In other words, it means that the goalposts have not only been moved, but we don't even know where they've been moved to until in real time, if they even exist at all, okay? And by the way, let me just clarify. When I say that the Bank of Japan no longer has an explicit put option level for markets anymore, that's 100% true. But by no means does that mean that the Bank of Japan is no longer easing, or the Bank of Japan is no longer trying to cap or control JGB yields or the yield curve. Clearly, that's not the case. Bank of Japan is not done with buying JGBs. You can 
see it very, very clearly when they published their JGB buying schedule as they do at the end of every single month, hours after the policy statement was released, right on schedule. And in this schedule, you can see what JGBs are buying, when they're buying, and how much of them they are buying at the time, okay? It's just that they've gotten rid of the explicit cap on yields. So no more fixed rate operations offering to bid for unlimited JGBs at yield level X, all right? Now, flexibility or optionality, that's what the Bank of Japan had really completely depleted. Because in the past, by putting an explicit red line hard level cap of where they will step in and offer to buy or defend JGB yields from going any higher, be it 25 basis points, 50 basis points, or whatever. But by doing that, they paint themselves in a corner and having to now defend a specific yield level that they themselves have put out there. And that's a problem in a global rising rate environment. As we saw, when the Bank of Japan was holding very firm at 25 basis points throughout 2022, when everybody and their mother was ripping rates higher and yields, yield spreads were just blasting the yen downwards, the Bank of Japan stood firm on 25 basis points. And then suddenly, at the very end of the year, they shock lifted yield curve control bands to 50 basis points. And as you can see, markets just, they went right up to next level. And when they did that, the Bank of Japan had to go to battle at this new 50 basis point level. And then they ended up buying a record amount of JGBs in January of this year to defend that new 50 basis point cap, okay? To a point where in January of this year, of 2023, the Bank of Japan did about 180 billion USD notional worth of bond buying. To put that in perspective, the Fed at its peak QE was doing 120 billion of QE monthly. In other words, in January of this year, the Bank of Japan did 50% more QE in notional than the Fed was doing at its peak QE. And why? It's because they lifted the cap on JGB 10-year yields. And an entire wave of selling was awakened from markets. And you just saw just this insane amount of pressure, of sell pressure, that they had to use their unlimited buying fortress wall to defend. Stated goal at the time when they lifted um, yield curve control bans in December of 2022 was because there was severe market dysfunctioning, right? You have a very messed up yield curve shape in which the 10-year tenor of JGB yields were yielding below 8- and 9-year JGBs. And not just that, but 8- and 9-year JGBs were yielding above the 10-year JGB yield curve control cap, okay? And it was creating massive problems and market distortions and market dysfunctioning. So they thought if they can just lift the 10-year cap up by, you know, 25 basis points, then that would smooth out the curve. But instead, what happened was there was so much sell pressure across the entire curve that it actually made that kink at the 10-year maturity level 
worse. So that was a horrific and very expensive moment and lesson that the Bank of Japan learned from, and that experience is really driving current policy, okay? So it's not about finding like the so-called natural level of where JGB yields are. If the risk-free US government has to pay 5% to borrow for one year out, then the world's most indebted government does not get to borrow funds for a decade out and pay less than 1% in interest to do so if it were up to free market price discovery. So it doesn't really matter where they set the next higher cap on JGB yields because markets will always just press up right against it eventually. And by eventually, I mean very quickly. And that's how the Bank of Japan became a prisoner to its own yield curve control program. And that's why I say that the first and foremost priority of the Bank of Japan is to regain control of their own policy back from the hands of markets and into their own hands, the yield curve control control, okay? So how do they get this flexibility? They do this by purposely implementing policy ambiguity and uncertainty into markets and removing all prior certainty and procedural precedents. Optionality comes at the expense of our understanding of policy behavior and protocol. And frankly, they've been succeeding so far in this new endeavor because like I said, yield curve control's fundamental problem in its design was that it had an explicit red line in the sand to defend. But in July, they just took that 50 basis point red line and they dissolved it and it became a reference level, whatever the hell that means. Now, they did put a new red line in the sand at 1% in the end of July, but at the time, they basically said that that's only there for good measure, but they don't expect JGB yields to even get that high. Well, fast forward to the eve of the latest October Bank of Japan meeting, and guess what? Yields were in the 90s, right on the cusp of hitting that 1% level. Okay, but again, they didn't jump up there. They took a sort of slow grind almost up there. I know it doesn't feel slow, but it's far more orderly than the elevator up vertical line that would happen. And how they managed to do this? They managed to do this by just being very heavy handed in markets using various tools of buying JGBs in unannounced manners and in different forms. And that's how they were able to not necessarily guide yields higher, but prevent them from just going vertically higher. That's what drove JGB yields higher, and that's what drove 10-year treasury yields higher, and the long end of sovereign bond yields everywhere else higher. This was the Bank of Japan who wasn't pushing yields higher, but they were trying their best to pull yields down so that they wouldn't explode higher, but they couldn't stop the yield move higher, the global yield move higher, or let alone the JGB yield move higher, because they didn't want to introduce a fixed rate operation and be cornered at a specific level and have to defend that to, to the death again. So this is what had been transpiring. And then once yields basically got right underneath that 1% level, what did they do? Well, if this was the old system, they would have gone to battle at 1% if yields um, were to reach 1%, or they would have potentially moved that 1% band higher to another explicit level, but this is no longer yield curve control. This is yield curve control control. So for this latest October meeting, they didn't adjust the red line. They got rid of the red line altogether. 
because there's no need to defend a red line if such a thing doesn't even exist in the first place. And so that's where we are now. We are flying blind without an explicit upper band. We have no idea where they are. All we know is that we're just tiptoeing around in someone's yard, gated yard, with a sign on the fence that says trespassers will be shot at any time. Okay, so if you're wondering why 10-year treasury yields broke out in the first place and then moved the way in which they did over the course of the past three months, that's by and large what happened, okay? So the question is not if the Bank of Japan and the shift in yield curve control framework at the end of July had an impact or contributed to the U.S. Treasury yields blowing out to 17-year highs thereafter. Okay, the answer to that question is a very simple and resounding, yes, the Bank of Japan was a major factor in that, okay? Question was, how did the Bank of Japan impact price action on long-dated U.S. Treasury yields? I will address that more into detail in one of these upcoming episodes around the specific tools that they use and the way in which they use them. But now let's go to that second theme that I mentioned at the top, the why you should care about what the Bank of Japan is doing, point number two. Let's talk about global monetary policies namely that of the Fed. So if indeed the key driver or key contributor of this move higher in U.S. yields and higher U.S. term premium had been the Bank of Japan's policy changes and daily bond market activity and all of that, if that is the case, and if we also now have Chair Powell and the Fed saying that the recent rise in long-dated U.S. Treasury yields and term premium is doing the Fed's tightening work for them, such that they can be on rate hike pausing, then essentially what that means is that the Bank of Japan is doing the financial conditions tightening work for the Fed, as well as for the ECB and the Bank of England and others. Okay? So... My question is, did the Fed and the ECB just hand off the active policy adjustment baton off to the Bank of Japan while they take a break? Or another way to say it would be, did the Bank of Japan just snatch the global tightening baton out of the hands of the Fed and the ECB and the Bank of England and the rest of whom are on hold? And even further... Did the Bank of Japan just allow for the others to take a pause in their rate hiking cycles? And if so, then that would mean that the Bank of Japan truly is the global duration anchor, or unanchor in this case. Now the tables have flipped, right? And now global DM central bank policy tightening is apparently almost single-handedly being done out of Tokyo. Albeit obviously indirectly so, and most likely unintentionally so, okay? So, all of that we will explore in much more detail in the coming episodes of Across the Spread, okay? This potential flip in policy dynamics and market influence that's now being concentrated out of Japan, all right? Note that I have not yet given a personal view here yet. I'm just merely presenting a differentiated approach to this whole bond yields rising thing, the Fed and the ECB, their behavior, their policy, and all that. I'm just giving it from my perspective in Asia, providing hopefully a fresh angle that you need to hear or at least consider, rather than hearing yet another regurgitated inward-looking comment on like the U.S. Treasury issuance supply or the Fitch downgrade of whatever. This is at least something else to consider. And if there is even just a slight possibility that global market 
interests and policy dynamics currently at play, as I've just laid out, like if that's actually just happening, then my God, we need to be reallocating our focus away from single microscope obsession over the Fed and expand our horizon globally and perhaps follow the major and volatile policy developments currently underway that are coming out of the Bank of Japan. Okay, we need to follow the 10-year JGB yield more than the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield in order to figure out the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield. We need to watch the U.S. dollar's strength and weakness against the Japanese yen and intervention risk overhanging in Forex markets in order to really understand the broader USD complex globally, especially as it decouples from things like yield spreads and traditional sort of correlations, right? And for that matter, we also need to, albeit at a lesser extent, we need to watch the Japanese equity market for cues on other major DM equity markets, such as the S&P 500, NASDAQ 100, Eurostox, DAX, and so on. And why? Because Japan equities were the standout outperformer in the first half of the year by far, and that was almost driven purely by foreign capital. So if those positions start to get, you know, rapid profit-taking or turn to heavy selling, then watch out below NASDAQ 100 because it's the same basic source of capital, okay? So ultimately, we need to watch Asia, Japan in particular at this moment, especially for fixed income, for the sake of understanding your own markets around the world through the lens of truly global macro. And frankly, very few are actually doing so. And it's because there's just an absence of meaningful insight from this region and perspective, okay? Look, I always say we all get the same global macro markets, right? We all get the same Euro USD cross. We all get the same Brent crude oil futures or whatever. Why is it that some make billions and others lose everything and then some on the same markets? Many reasons, but for one, it's because we don't get the same lens and information in which we're viewing these same markets. So what I'm trying to do is, once again, just providing the take from the Asia perspective with hopefully differentiated insights within the Asia perspective to hopefully fill in some of the holes. And look, even if you disconnect all those things that I just laid out, right, from the Bank Japan policy to the JGB market price action to the U.S. Treasury market price action to the Fed saying the rise in long dated U.S. Treasury yields is doing the tightening work for us. And therefore, what I'm saying is that that means that the Bank of Japan is doing the tightening for the Fed, right? Even if you disconnect all that, here's very simply why Japan is indeed the mo most market consequential major central bank to watch in the immediate term. Simply put, it's because the world's central banks were aggressively active in policy tightening to combat inflation for, for the last year and a half, two years, while the Bank of Japan was standstill and standalone and being standstill. And now the world is reaching standstill just as the Bank of Japan has become active. Simple as that. Fed, ECB, Bank of England, and others, they're by and large done with hiking, okay? And they're currently on hold. Can they add another hike or two in the future? Sure. And who cares? They just ripped policy rates by like 500 basis points in a year and a half. They're at the finish line, okay? But the Bank of Japan? Who the hell knows? The BOJ is just embarking on this fundamental policy shift and changes and making changes to the very foundation of global policy easing, which basically had allowed for these other 
global central banks to be as hawkish as they had been for the last two years. Okay, so again, given how wide scale this topic is, that's why I have to break it up into different parts. I'm also going to have supplementary written articles, which will be released alongside as well. So stay tuned for that. But this is just my bigger th picture thesis of what's going on here and just to outline why the Bank of Japan matters to everybody. <laughs>